Spread the fire. My name is Tessa Dooms. This is SMWX. Um, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about that one event that everybody's waiting for at the beginning of the political calendar, SONA. What if I told you that in the 2024 elections in South Africa this year, we're not going to be voting for a president? We are actually going to be voting for 400 potential presidents. And so what's this got to do with SONA? Um, every year we fixate on SONA, we fixate on the president, what the president's going to say, but we don't think about where he is saying it, which is parliament. We don't think about parliament half as much as we should. Yet, when we go and vote, which we will do in 2024, the big year of the next vote in our lives, in our collective lives as South Africans, we're not actually voting for that president that pronounces on that SONA. We are voting for the 400 members of parliament and the hundreds of members of provincial legislatures, MPLs, who then represent us in parliament, we the people. They represent us in the house of the people, which is what parliament is. And so while we're all fixating on who's the next presidential candidate or who's the next president, and we're doing all of these weird polls on social media, we are losing sight of the real prize in our democratic edifice, which is parliament, which is the people's house. I have a contention that I like to make, that I think that our democracy hinges more on what parliament does than what a, what a president does that our democracy will rise and fall based on the strength of those 400 representatives, rather than whether we find the most charismatic, decisive, or um, talented one individual to be president. And I say this because when we think about the work of parliament, which I, again, I don't think we do enough, parliament's job is so much more important because it creates the structure of our society. It enforces the constitution and brings it to life through law. But it, more importantly, it gives expression to all of society, not just the party that wins and that party's representative, which becomes the president, but it gives expression to all of us. But why would I say that we are gonna be voting for 400 potential presidents? What do I mean? We, when we go and vote, our electoral system doesn't allow us to vote directly for a president. And it's something, again, we forget very often. Our electoral system allows us to vote for parties' lists. And those lists are of representatives that the parties will send into parliament, depending on how many votes they get. So when a party gets 57%, like the ANC did in the 2019 election, they have 57% of the seats in parliament that they are going to fill with people on their lists. But every person who's on that list or any other list of a political party that gets into parliament, even if that party only gets one seat in parliament, every one of those people could be elected president because it is parliament that elects the president. When those 400 people get into that parliamentary chamber and are sworn in, they then take the place of all 40 million voters, assuming all 40 million eligible voters actually vote this year. And they then decide amongst themselves who will be president. So it's entirely possible, and we've seen this in the city of Joburg actually, 
We don't even have to imagine this anymore. It's entirely possible that any one of those people could become president. And so while we're fixating on you know, candidates and parties who are telling us you only have four presidential options, or I want to be president, we've got a lot of those people coming out of the woodworks, I think I'd be a great president. While we're fixating on that, we actually are going to be nominating in people and any of them could be president. Now, here's a, a thought experiment for you. And I started thinking about this a few months ago um, because parliament is taking place at the moment in the city of Cape Town Hall, which means when, we, when they do um, their voting within parliament, they actually now have to say their names when they vote. And I was listening to the names of MPs as they were voting the first time they did this. And it occurred to me that I don't actually know the majority of members of parliament. I don't know their names. I don't know where they're from. And I don't know what they do. So here's my thought experiment. If you exclude people who are in cabinet and you exclude leaders of political parties, can you name 10 other members of parliament without Googling? The majority of us can't do that. Yet any of the members who are in parliament right now could have become president. And we don't know who they are. More importantly, they don't think that they have to be known. They don't think they have to know us. They don't think they have to account to us. They don't think they have to have a relationship with us unless we are in their party, and even more importantly, in their party's leadership. Because we have created a culture that has taken our electoral system that has prioritized parties, because parties are, what voted, are what's voted for, and we've made it about party bosses and accountabilities to party bosses. So MPs get put onto lists through a closed list system, which means that the parties decide by themselves. And so those MPs know that the people who can take them out of parliament is not us, the voters. The people who can take them out of parliament are the actual um, party bosses. And so they only fear the party bosses. They only listen to the party bosses. That's the reason why we talk so much about the party line, because our members of parliament are not known by us don't care about us, and do not account to us, the people. Yet, when we go and vote, it is our votes that secures them any chance of actually being in that parliament. And I, I bring this up because I want us to think about what the implications of that are, especially in the 2024 elections. We know that there are, there's a higher possibility in this election than ever before that we may have national and multiple provincial coalitions. We all know that Gauteng is going to be a very hotly contested province, very high chances of a coalition. We all know that KZN is becoming increasingly hotly contested, especially with some of the moves that have been made um, in the ANC ecosystem in the last few months. I would say the Western Cape is also opening up as a hotly contested province. And so we may have multiple coalitions in multiple provinces, and we may have one at national. And like what happened in the city of Joburg, and everybody can bemoan the idea that a one-seat party got the mayoral seat, but that is legal and it's legitimate because when we vote for those 400 people who are in parliament or those 120 people who are in a council, we give over our right for them to choose who a mayor is for them to choose who a premier is and for them to importantly choose 
who a president is. And so if those 400 people, after we have voted, decide that somebody who was not even spoken about during the entire election, Joe James, who we've never ever spoken about nationally, should be president, that person will be president. And there's nothing we'll be able to do about it. And so I'd like us to think more as we go into this election about parliament, who is there, and what parliament is meant to be doing. As we go into the election cycle, we are going to be told about individual candidates a lot. But I would like us as voters to ask more about the lists that parties are presenting. So the IEC has a process. And once we get to the point where the IEC asks the, the, the parties that are eligible for their lists, those lists will be made public by the IEC. So we will have sight of every party that is contesting for national and provincial seats, lists of people who will take up those seats if they win. And there's a period of time where we'll be able to scrutinize those lists and raise objections. Now, the IEC focuses on very legal objections that can be raised. Objections around criminal records, um, objections around whether the person is eligible um, by, by the criteria that is set by law. But I'd like us to take that a step further as voters in this election. We should be saying to political parties, we care about who the people on your lists are, all of them. We care about the quality of those people. We care about the character of those people. We care about whether they will be good representatives of us in society, in the world, in global stages. At this point as a country, we probably know more about the person who becomes Miss South Africa and care more about whether that person is gonna be a good representative of ours than we do about the actual members of parliament who actually represent us and actually get to go out there into the world and say that they are representatives of the nation, of we the people. And so I want us as voters to put emphasis on who is on the list of political parties. How did those people get onto those lists? Whose interests do those people serve? What qualities do they have? What experience do they have? What, what motivates them? What qualifications do they have? We must know that every single person on that list, if something happened and they were elected president of this country, we would still be in safe hands. We would still be in hands we trust. It would still work out well for us. But not only because they could become president, but because the work of parliament shapes our society. And I want us to talk about the work of parliament, but I first want us to just all agree that as a country, we are not going to just fixate on some messianic president who's supposed to come and save us all. The days of that are gone. There's no second Mandela coming. What we do have in front of us is the opportunity to select a team of 400 people in parliament who could all be president or ministers or anything that the country needs but are able to serve us well and do the job and be accountable to us. And I think if we get that right in this election, we will have moved our democracy forward. Thanks for watching SMWX. Before we get back to the episode, I just wanted to let you know the four ways that you can help support this channel if you wanna see us growing bigger and better to keep you more entertained and informed. The first way is you can invite me to speak at your company, your school, your institution. You'll see the contact details down below. The second way is that you can become a member of this channel. 
Become a member or you can give us a thanks. You'll see there's like a heart with a dollar sign in the ribbon below this video. Buy me and the team some coffee for this episode. The third way you can get involved is you can advertise on the channel. Now, I'd much rather the community of viewers would be advertisers on this channel than me going out to people who don't really know about SMWX and trying to explain it to them. So if you're a viewer and you have a business and you want to partner and you love this platform, let's partner on this channel. And then finally, you can buy merchandise, you can buy books. All this is in the description down below. Now let's get back to the episode. So in this section, we're going to start talking about who parliamentarians represent. Um, when MPs and MPLs, members of legislation in provinces, get into those seats, those 400 seats, those provincial seats, and um, the seats that make up the NCOP, the 10 members that come from each province that go into the National Assembly, um, the National Council of Provinces, who do these people actually represent? In our current electoral system, because we have um, a proportional representative system where we vote for parties and they put in people through their lists, at this point, those MPs see themselves as representatives of parties, right? And they do represent the, the number of seats and the seats that those parties represent. And that's the reason why it becomes possible for a party to recall an MP or a president or a minister because the party holds the seat. It would be different if we had direct elections, right? And it's possible for us to have a parliamentary system like we have now, where we are voting essentially for members of parliament, but actually vote for each individual in parliament as well. And if we change the constitution, which I'm not saying we should do, but this would require constitutional change, we could also vote directly for a president. But I think that's a debate for a different day. But in the Constitution, in the version of the Constitution we have now, it would not be illegal for us to be able to, to think about a system of represent, representation that's more direct, right? Um, we still need to do changes, but it would not be as major a change. So let's think about the implications of voting for a party that now owns a seat versus voting for individuals directly. In... In terms of the way the system works, the reason why we chose a PR system is because when we vote for parties and at this proportional level, what it essentially means is that smaller parties stand a better chance of getting representation. Because what you're doing is you're just saying, however many voters that there are, we just cut it up, and that means smaller parties stand a better chance. And that's different for direct voting. Because direct voting, you mean that every individual person, regardless of their party, needs to go and contest. And they have to contest within a constituency or particular geographic space. It's actually the exact same thing we do when we are electing ward councillors. And what you will know about um, the, the local government elections, even when we're, we're voting for ward councillors, that parties that have more money a bigger party machinery, have a bigger brand, often get votes and the people who are part of those parties get votes even if we don't know who those people are really. So you have the sense that the party and the party brand just topples over the idea of the, of the individual. Independent candidates also struggle because they don't have 
big machinery. They don't have the ability to be louder than some of the big political parties. So they struggle, right? And so the, the thinking behind it is that if you go with individuals contesting for constituencies, that it becomes harder for smaller parties to really resource and make sure that their individual candidates get through the system. And so when we got into our democratic era, we chose, or era, maybe it was an era, but that's a different story. But we chose a proportional representation system so that smaller parties can be represented. Now, that was a historical decision to create a electoral system that is interim. And this is something we don't talk about again enough. The electoral system that we have right now is one that was decided on in a very short space of time. I think the, it, it, the election was actually decided, or it was decided that the election needed to happen right around the time that Chris Hani was assassinated, which would have been about April um, 1993. The process to actually get the election date confirmed and the, all the processes moving only happened in November of that year. So there was a very short window of time to decide on the election and then to decide on an election electoral system. It was essentially still part of the negotiation period. We were negotiating our way into a transition. And so decisions were made about what is the most expedient thing to do, the fastest thing to do, but also what is the thing that will broker the deal that is necessary so that we can make sure the transition is complete. And that deal made sure that minority rights are protected, which is a good thing. But we must understand that it was a deal that was made because the history and that historical moment required it. And that's why our electoral system was thought of as interim. We thought that we would, as we de define the constitution, go back and ask the question, does this electoral system work for us? Is this the electoral system we need going forward? And we never actually answered that question. And the reason why I know we never answered that question was because Nelson Mandela himself posed that question again at his last sitting in March 1999 of Parliament, where he challenged Parliament. And he said to Parliament, we actually need to think about whether this electoral system works for us. And he spoke really eloquently in that speech, and I, I encourage you to read it, about the work of Parliament and the work of that particular first parliament and how much work they did in terms of going to communities and building consensus and coming up with laws that they needed to change in order to change what, what, what apartheid had delivered as a legacy. But he says, even with all of those gains and those wins, all they had established was that a constitutional parliamentary democracy can work. But now we have to ask the question, if the electoral system is still the, is the right one? And I think the answer to that has come in different forms. And I think the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. Because at this point, we have learned that our parliamentarians think that they represent parties. We've seen in different forms, whether it's voting for a president or voting for bills in parliament or voting for numerous impeachment processes, that every individual member of parliament doesn't seem to think that they have to rationalize their decisions. They just take the party line and they implement that party line. Yet when they take that oath in parliament, they are taking an oath to the constitution, 
to the country and to doing this work for us and on behalf of the people, not on behalf of the party. The Constitution doesn't say it's we the, we the party shall govern. It's we the people shall govern. It is not the party's parliament. It's the people's parliament. Yet the party has so much say over what individual MPs do. And so MPs at this point in real life are representing parties when they should be representing people. And the only way I think we get a step closer to that is interrogating why we don't have constituency-based voting. Why those members of parliament do not take seriously that they have to have people in this society that they are accountable to. I, I actually got a shock a few years ago when I realized that parliament allows for political parties to divide the country up into constituencies once the elections are done. So in the same way that those MPs and parties decide the president, they also divide us up into constituencies, into different groups. So the DA will just divide the, part, the country up into however many parts it wants and tell MPs, this is the area that you have a constituency in. And gives those parliamentarians what we call constituency days. And so in every quarter of parliament, Parliamentarians have constituency days and constituency offices, which means all of us have more than one parliamentarian from every party that is assigned to us. Yet we're never told who those people are assigned to. We're never told who our constituency MP is. They don't come to us on constituency days. Instead, they use constituency days to do party work, to go and look at party members and party membership. And that's not what those days are meant to be for. But because our electoral system doesn't allow us to directly vote for MPs, they don't, they don't feel anything about whether or not they can be removed by us. The president as well. We've had two presidents removed in this country and it had nothing to do with us. I know everybody thinks that Jacob Zuma's removal had something to do with marches that were happening across the country and hashtags. But ultimately, Jacob Zuma was removed because of something that happened within the party. Him losing, or I guess Cyril Ramaphosa winning that election within his party is the reason why Jacob Zuma was removed. And so we must get to the point where we are represented in parliament, where the work of parliament is about what we need as people of this country, so that our vote and our democracy is not limited to just five minutes every five years. We need to be engaged throughout the process of democracy. In other countries in the world, MPs, members of parliament, actually have to go and listen to people before they take a vote. We saw it happen in the UK a few years ago, where we saw three prime ministers in four months. And those prime ministers weren't just removed because the party said so. They all came from the Conservative Party. But it wasn't because the party said so. It was because MPs were getting actual pressure from constituencies where they live, their own communities where they have to serve, the people who actually put them in power through the vote and by law can recall them through a vote. There's something to be said for the ability of voters in between elections to be able to leverage our power to get politicians to act right, to get politicians to listen to us. There's a reason why we have 26 protests on average a year in this country. 
because we are frustrated that our voices are not heard in between elections. The way we change that is by making sure that parliamentarians know that they represent us. We the people, they don't just represent party bosses. They don't just have to worry about whether or not they keep that seat because of how they behave at party conferences. They have to think about how they do their work, how their work affects us. When we give representations in parliament, it should matter. When they come to our communities and they do their, their public engagements, they can't just bust their party members in. They actually need to listen to us, whether we're in their parties or not. The majority of South Africans are not in political parties. The biggest political parties have about a, a million members. The ANC and, and the EFF have about a million members. Those are the biggest parties, but they get 10 million votes in order to hold those seats. Those other 9 million people matter. In fact, everybody matters whether you voted or not. And we must teach our politicians that we matter not only when they need our votes, that we matter throughout the five years that they govern. And if they don't govern correctly, we must have accountability measures in place. We must be able to speak back. We must be able to put pressure on them. We must be able to recall them from those seats if they are not doing the work that they are meant to be doing. And so that does mean electoral reform. And again, going back to Nelson Mandela's speech in 1999, he speaks explicitly about the need for a real conversation in this country about electoral reform because that's the power that the voter has and that power must not be limited. Last year, when Parliament was dealing with the Electoral Amendment Bill and the, and the year before, when they were coming up with the Electoral Amendment Bill, it became very clear to us that even though they had an opportunity to add independent candidates, and that was the focus, when it came down to it, they did everything in their power to not have constituency-based voting because that would reduce their power as the party bosses, as the parliamentarians that got, got elected through the system we have now. I think we must think really carefully as a nation about whether the way we vote is giving us the best democratic outcomes, is giving us the best opportunities for accountability, and is making sure that the people who go to represent us in our house are actually accountable to us actually fear us, actually care about what we say, and not just what they say at their party headquarters. In this section, I want us to talk about the work of Parliament. We've spoken already about the need for us to care about Parliament. We've spoken about who represents us in Parliament. But I want us to talk about what does Parliament actually do? What do they do when they go there? Um, Fun story is I've been speaking to people who've been considering getting into politics quite a bit in the last year or so. And one of the things I've heard consistently, and especially from people who've been in parliament before, um, who are thinking of returning to parliament, is they say, I'm afraid of being bored in parliament. I'm afraid of being a backbencher that's not going to have anything to do. I don't think I'm going to be really good at speeches because we've also reduced parliament to debates and speeches. But we, that shows that we are not utilizing parliament effectively. Where if we if we've th think about parliament only as, you know, showcases and sonar speeches and red carpets on sonar day and debates, 
we are misunderstanding the power of parliament and the work of parliament. The work of parliament is absolutely the bedrock of our, our country, right? So we have a constitution, but it is not the judiciary's responsibility to enforce that constitution and bring it to life. The judiciary's, the judiciary's responsibility is to make sure that parliament as the ones who make the laws and the ones who make sure that the, the, the executive implement those laws are doing the work legally, are doing the work in line with the constitution. That's the best job the judiciary can do. In our country, what has happened is parliament is starting to defer all of their work to the courts. You see party after party excited every time they announce they're going to court for the courts to decide whether or not minister so-and-so should be held liable or accountable for something that they've done wrong. Deciding whether or not a minister has done their work or not and holding their, them accountable is the work of parliament, not the work of judges. So we're in this weird space where we are seeing more court cases deciding what parliament's outcomes should be than parliamentary work deciding it. We are at a point where we don't see parliamentarians actually debating to persuade each other. We just see them debating to grandstand and get sound bites that go onto the news. We are listening to speeches that are about poetry rather than speeches that are about making points to actually change the laws of the country or to affect some sort of um, accountability to the executive of the country. This sixth administration, I am 100% sure, is the weakest we've had since the dawn of democracy. We have not seen the sixth administration do work that really pushes the envelope. In fact, important discussions and debates around the creative sector and laws and bills that have been sitting in this parliament have been sitting for over four years. Important discussions about land and the land expropriation question have been sitting around and have been dealt with poorly by this administration. We've seen the, the Palapala issue just get squashed by this parliament's administration, or this administration's parliament. And we're not seeing this parliament actually having done anything that pushes the envelope forward. Yet it's this parliament that has had MPs and ministers who've had the audacity to blame their lack of developmental outcomes and their lack of work that they've done to transform the society on the constitution itself. When it's the constitution that has empowered parliament and the executive to get the work done. I think we have to say to parliament, number one, in this next five years, what's the parliamentary agenda? Every political party must answer that question. What is your parliamentary agenda? What do you intend to get done in parliament? Yes, we can talk about policies all day long, but most parties are not going to end up in executive positions where they can make policy and execute policy. Most parties are going to end up in parliament. And to be in parliament means to have the work of a legislative agenda. What laws are you going to enact? What laws are you going to review? What laws are you going to change? What laws are you going to invent from scratch? The lawmaking work is the work of parliament. 
and the ways in which law decides and shapes our society is important. Right now, there's a, a law that's on the table, a bill that's on the table around traditional um, leaders and um, the ways in which our traditional court systems work. That has a direct effect on the lives of rural people and the ways in which they can access justice, on the ways in which they can ensure that their voices are heard, on the ways in which they can participate effectively, on the ways in which they can get services delivered to them. That is the work of parliament. And we must understand that that work is not just about grandstanding. That work is the revolutionary work of creating a society. And you say, well, parliament is not a revolutionary house. It is a revolutionary house. It is a house that says we are taking revolutionary ideas and we are transforming them into instruments of reform. We are taking ideas that say we can change the society, the big ideas, and we are breaking them down into small pieces of legislation that build the bricks of the house, that make a revolution happen. We can have all the revolutionary talk we want to at rallies. If those parties cannot turn that into the actual bricks and mortar that the, that the legislation provides us to build a revolutionary society, then all of it is for naught. Nothing matters. And so the work of parliament is to represent us. Every MP must see themselves and know that they are the political activist that go into parliament, that go into the bureaucracy, that go into legislations, and that go into the executive. And they go and fight for the ideas that we care about, the issues we care about. They go and do the work of researching. They go and do the work of figuring out what is legally possible. They go and do the work of ensuring that all of society gets on board of debating issues until they've convinced each other. They must be able to and willing to do that work. And so what the legislative agenda of each party is should be a question we ask in the 2024 election if we ask nothing else. And so we're, as we head into the opening of parliament and we fixate on SONA and the SONA speech, I want to ask us to not leave it at that. For that not to be the last day that we look at the House of Parliament in Cape Town. That actually that day for me is a waste of time. I, I will say that. It is ceremonial. SONA does not actually set an agenda for anything, really. Because SONA is not something that Parliament can vote on. SONA is not something the President can be held accountable for. SONA is pageantry and performance for politicians. What is actually important for the House of Parliament is what happens a week and a half later when the budget speech comes out. Because that budget speech is a technical document, it's a legal document, and it's a document that parliamentarians actually have to vote on. And without a budget, it doesn't matter what the nice words are that the president says, nothing will move. So let's get focused in this election. Let's get focused in this election year. And let's not get distracted by the pageantry. Let's not get distracted by the theatrics. Let's not get distracted by the glitzy and glam of what happens at our parliamentary house on SONA. Let's get into the work of looking at what parliament does, thinking about what we want from parliament and making sure that the parliamentarians who are there and who are in those legislatures all over the provinces 
are doing our work representing us and building a revolutionary society based on revolutionary ideas that will change and transform substantively the life of every South African. Because if democracy is that we govern ourselves, then that house must be our house. Those people must be our people. And whatever decisions they make must be ones that we, the people, approve. So let's get ready for SONA 2024, but more importantly, let's keep getting ready for the elections. I'm Tessa Dooms. Aye, yeah, yeah.